Well, good morning to all of you. Wonderful to see all of you this morning. I remember coming back to Twin City Bible Church. I'd been here before, and it was a second time about, let's see, six or seven years ago now when when I was here with my wife Beth for Pam and Carrie's 10th anniversary as pastor of the church. Where does all the time go? We, uh, we are longtime friends, as he said, and the moment I met Carrie and Pam, I said, Lord, give me their friendship, if you will, because I saw a genuineness there. I saw a sweetness. Uh, they're just cotton-picking normal. <laughs> That's the way we'd say it in Arkansas. So I'm so delighted to be here and so uh, delighted to have been with the men over the weekend. A couple of different churches represented, I think about 230 men, I think, something like that. And I mean, what an incredible turnout that was. And I was so blessed to meet so many new friends. And it's a wonderful time. And what a great church you have. I am so delighted and blessed to be just a part not only of the Expositor Seminary, but to be a part of the churches that TES represents. And so we are grateful for our bond together, not only in the theological training of men, preparing them for ministry, but to have the kind of fellowship that these churches enjoy. So thank you so very much. When Carrie and I talked about the idea of bringing um, any particular message from God's Word and what the Lord might have for us in this hour. I told him that there might be some encouragement to you if I were to open God's Word for us to Psalm 39. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Psalm 39, we had the reading of God's Word from Psalm 30 earlier, and we go several psalms forward, we find ourselves this morning in Psalm 39. Psalm 39 has become to me one of my all-time favorites. Now, I know it's hard because I have been, over the last number of years, been preaching through the psalms. Uh, trying to preach one sermon per psalm, and I've done thus far 93 of them, and I have no idea what's going to happen when Psalm 119 comes around. (laughs) And I tried to preach one sermon per psalm to try to capture the essence of the totality of that particular psalm. And Psalm 39 was one that I had preached before, and then a series of events began to unfold as I was entering the decade of my 50s, and now that I've emerged into the decade of my 60s, I realized a very challenging and very despairing consequence of seven deaths in my family. 
which seemed to be coming at me with rapid-fire succession. Here's what happened. My parents were divorced when I was four years of age. Their relationship was very volatile. We were living in California at the time, and when they divorced, I had had flashes in my mind from then to now of great abuse and physical altercations between them on both sides, actually. And so in a sense, that divorce brought at least a modicum of, of silence and rest, at least from the physical altercations. My mother had my sister and me very close to each other. So there is now in Southern California a, a single mom who was trying to find jobs to support us. This was back in the early 60s and at one point she realized that uh, she was not being successful and so she called my grandmother, her mother, and said, can I come back to Arkansas with these kids and can we stay with you for a while so that I can get on my feet and maybe find a job there? And so she was given that okay and so we moved to Arkansas in 1966 and that's the state in which I grew up. My mother just prior to leaving Southern California, was despairing of all life and got one of those knocks on the door that she thought was from God because the knock on that door was from the Jehovah's Witnesses. And so she became a Jehovah's Witness. And in all my growing up years, though I didn't frequent the Kingdom Hall of the Jehovah's Witnesses, and she became less interested in going there, but certainly continuing to adhere to their teaching. But some of her volatil- volatility continued, and it was a rough upbringing for my sister and me. My sister left when she was about 14 years of age as a runaway. I just threw my life into sports and The home life was very, very troublesome, arguing, fighting, cursing. My mother was a restless wanderer. We moved all around the state of Arkansas, usually about every year and a half or two years or so. It was unstable, problematic, troublesome. And even though she had a thin veneer of religiosity based on the JWs, she was always moving us around and always restless and she met a man who she began to date who was already married to someone else and at one point his wife died of cancer and a few years went by and they called me. I was already involved in ministry out in California and already gone through seminary and was serving on staff at Grace Community Church and they called me and said, we know that we're living in sin and we know we need to be married and so would you come and marry us to each other? Now my friends, that's very strange to have your son marry your mother to someone else. But I knew that that was the right thing because I'd rather have them married instead of unmarried and 
sexually sinning, so I did perform that wedding ceremony in December of 1987. And for the next many years, I pled with them to come to faith in Christ. And then it began. My stepfather, who I appreciated much because he was much more calm and less volatile than my own father, he died. He was older. But that began in that decade as I was looking at the front end of my 50s was the start of seven deaths in my family. He was the first. My kids, of course, knew him, and that was the first death that they had seen in our immediate family. And it was my opportunity to continue to teach them how to respond to this concept of death and particularly the death of a loved one. The Lord had given me a wonderful wife, Beth, and she had become the bearer of my eight children, five girls and three boys. And we were needing to teach them about the concept of death. What does death mean? And how does death itself come into the play of God's redemptive plan? And God's creation of human beings. And so this was a, a number one case of teaching ministry to these younger kids. Little did I know that after his death, my own mother would also die. She was being treated in a hospital in the Little Rock area for a blood clot behind her right knee, which apparently in one of those Night times in the hospital had apparently traveled from the knee to the heart, and she died instantly. I was pastoring in California, and I was so saddened because I knew that my mother didn't know the Lord. It was just heartbreaking for me because I had, I had sought her and pled with her to come to faith in Jesus Christ, and she refused Well, then I thought in my 50s, surely because they were a bit older, that these deaths in your family would uh, not be as numerous as these seemed to be in rapid-fire succession, but it wasn't to be. On December 2nd of 2017, I was preaching in Baltimore, Maryland for a dear pastor friend and doing a conference just like I did here for this weekend, and I received that call that none of us ever want to receive, and it was from my own dear wife, who said, I woke up this morning so excited to help Lexa, who's my seventh child. I'm so excited about her wedding coming up one week from that day. But Lance, I knew something was wrong. I felt horrible. Now, I'd never, ever seen my wife sick, ever. Maybe a sniffle here or two, but I'd never seen her as sick. In fact, she was so active in our family with these eight kids, I never even saw my wife take a nap. 
Now that's something. And so I knew what she was telling me was, was serious. And she said, so this morning when the kids, and there were only two girls left in the home at that point, including the one that was being married a week later, said, Mom, we need to take you to the hospital. And so they took her to the emergency room, and she was calling me to tell me that the doctors had done some scans of her chest and of her head. and said, we're so sorry to tell you that you have a large tumor mass in the left lobe of your lung, and it has already metastasized to your brain. We're so sorry. So she called me with that news. And I remember remember my first response was, no, no. She was my, she was my heart. She was my partner in ministry. We'd been married for over 30 years up to that point and all I could think of was, don't let her die. And the Lord gave us two years and four months together, surgeries and chemotherapy, and she was a trooper through the whole season. But on March 30th of 2020, 3.30 in 2020, at 4.40 p.m., she died and went to be with the Lord. Just last month, the third anniversary, my kids were devastated. Though all eight of my kids professed to know and love Jesus Christ, if I were the head of the home, she was its backbone, to be sure. And so I said, well, Lord... What will you have for me to do? And of course, when you lose your, your own wife, I poured my heart into the shepherding of my eight children, my ministry in California. And I thought to myself, well, let me minister to my people and particularly my kids. And as they were being married and having their own children, this is... This is a a legacy that I can keep on even though Beth won't be here. And one of the joys was to see one of these little grandbaby boys be born to my oldest son and his wife. And Beth was going through the treatment and she was doing as well as could be expected. And we were rejoicing to see this little guy. And he was born a little bit premature But he was doing well, but they needed to sort of get his weight up a little bit. And so they put him in the NICU unit and they wanted to give him some nutrients so that his weight would be more than it was. And otherwise, he was incredibly healthy. And so they decided to put in the NICU unit there in Thousand Oaks a pick line that would put some nourishment in his body to get his weight up. And they called us and said, you need to come to the hospital immediately. We're so sorry, but unbeknownst to our medical staff, the pick line had not been properly sterilized. And this little four-day-old baby boy is going to die soon. 
It systemically went through his little body and he didn't have the strength to combat it. And so my sick dear wife and I held hands together and cried as we watched him die. Calvin Theodore. It was crushing. And then, of course, Beth herself died. And I was reeling. In less than three months, I received a call from my niece saying, have you talked with my mother, your sister, lately? I said, well, I, I've tried. I preached shortly after Beth's death a resurrection message in which I knew that hoped my sister, who was an unbeliever, would be encouraged because I made some personal references to, the, to my wife and her one-day resurrection from the dead with no cancer, no tears, no sorrow. And I sent it to her, but I haven't heard from my sister Penny. I haven't heard a word. What's going on? And she said, well, she's in hospice care now. She has about a week to live. And I said, what? I said, why? What's happened? She said, well, she's been secretly drinking and smoking herself to death. And she's losing those vital organs. You need to come. So I immediately booked a flight and took off that same day and was at her bedside the next afternoon pleading with her to repent. And for a week I laid vigil, a siege of prayer and hope that she would repent in these last hours, but she refused to do so. She died without Christ. In fact, when I performed her burial service in Blyville, Arkansas, it was on what would have been her 61st birthday. And so I said, Lord, my stepfather, my mother, my grandson, my wife, now my sister, in these rapid-fire successive deaths, Lord, help me, help me, help me understand and help me to persevere and proclaim your truth. And surely I thought it was over, but it wasn't. Shortly after that, I received word that my favorite aunt, who was more of a mother to me than my mother was a mother to me, was reported to have died. And we want you to come to that same cemetery in Blyville, Arkansas, and bury her too. And so I did. And by that time, I thought, it must be over. This season, the whole of my 50s has just been one death after another. And then I received another call just in 2021 that my precious, believing, Christian mother-in-law who loved me and allowed me to marry her daughter was having aortic valve replacement in Little Rock, Arkansas. And the surgery was successful, but when they were doing the post-operative care, they removed a tube that was there for drainage purposes and one of her arteries burst and she bled out on the table 
I couldn't save her. And so I was back again on a plane going to Little Rock, Arkansas to do her memorial service at the church that I had formerly pastored. So my friends, I bring those seven deaths up to you to say what Psalm 39 says. Life is a vapor. Life is a vapor. Listen to what King David says in Psalm 39. To the choir master, to Jedithan, a psalm of David. I said I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused, the fire burned, then I spoke with my tongue, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. The ESV here says, let me know how fleeting I am, the NASB, how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow, or the NAS, a phantom, Selah. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool or the NAS. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I am mute, I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke or your plague from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand, or because of the opposition of your hand, I am perishing. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. Or the NAS, do not be silent at my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest or a stranger like all my fathers. Look away from me, turn your gaze away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Now, of course, this is what we call a lament psalm. There's great lament here. And when I was reading this psalm, 
in the context of seven successive deaths which seemed like every other day. I've come to love this psalm because even though it's a lament psalm, it gives me the kind of divine truth that allows me to accentuate what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 68a, God is good and does good. Now for some of us, and even at my first blush at all of these deaths, might rather say, Lord, this is not fair. And so as I was looking at Psalm 39 and as I was pondering its truths, it seemed to me that there are four clear principles that come out of this text of Scripture, and I want to share them with you. The first is this, be careful. Be careful. Within the first three verses of this psalm is something that I think David is coaching himself to do and certainly was now helping me to do, and that is to be careful with my tongue. Now, I've already shared with you that when I was receiving that call from my dear wife about that which was stunning to her and now perilous to me, the first thing that sometimes can come to all of our minds, and it came to me, was what I said to you, no, No, Lord, don't do this. Don't take her away from me. Why? And if we're not careful, perhaps even with unbelievers around, what we might be coming across with our words to them is something like this. God is arbitrary. God is capricious. God is unloving. He's unkind. This is wrong of him to do. This should not be the plan. Why are you doing this to us, to her, to me, to our family? And I think David's first point here in the first three verses is a warning. Be careful what you say. Don't indict the God of your creation. Don't claim about him what isn't true. He's not capricious. He's not arbitrary. He can be trusted. He is loving, gracious, and kind. Even as the catechism says, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite and eternal in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God can be trusted. And I think David is coaching his own heart, and he's calling upon everyone who reads this psalm to coach their heart about being careful how you represent God, especially to the unbelieving world. Notice what he says. Verse 1, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. 
I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. Notice the line that comes next. So long as the wicked are in my presence. That's a be careful statement, isn't it? Be careful how you represent the God that you and I serve in the midst of the unbelieving world. Now, having read that and having explained that, that by no means does it take the pain away, right? We still have grief, absolute sorrow, the loss of not just one loved one, but many. Even the sorrow and grief and vexation of those of our loved ones who don't know Christ. Even for those who know Christ, my my dear wife, my dear mother-in-law, they are those who are worshiping our Savior even as we speak. No sin, no sorrow, no tears, no cancer. God is good and does good. And He does all things well. And we better be careful about how we represent Him to the watching world. We want to represent Him as He truly is, not a God of our own fancy, our own making. And I think that's what David must be saying here. But notice verse 2. It's not as though it takes all the pain away, all the grief, all the sorrow. Notice what he says in verse 2. I was mute and silent. That is, when the wicked are in my presence, I'm rightly representing God. But maybe as he steps away from them in his mute and silent condition, he says, I held my peace to no avail. And my distress grew worse. In other words, it was all pent in. And when he got by himself, the floodgates opened. I've known this now by my own experience. I live alone in South Florida. I just married my little baby girl, my last daughter, last Saturday. I'm here with you, and they're in Costa Rica having a high old time. But when I get on the plane this afternoon and go home, nobody's there. I'll be all alone. Perhaps if you've had that experience, I held my peace to no avail, but my distress grew worse. You know what's true about these psalms? And particularly what David is saying here, life is still raw and real, even with the loss of the loved ones, even with someone who's a widower who's now living alone. He says in verse 3, my heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned Whatever's going on here, and we honestly don't know what David is specifically referring to, I think that's actually a plus for us. Because even though we don't know exactly 
what David's precise situation is that he's pondering. It's been flattened out for us, not all the Psalms, of course. Some of them give us directly the siege, the problem, the issue. This one doesn't. This lament is one size fits all. And I suspect that's why it's unnamed what this issue is, because we're all going through something, and it's different for all of us. So whatever he's going through, the fire is continuing to burn. And because of that, and perhaps because David is looking and examining and pondering his own life, he says, then I finally spoke with my tongue. And this is now pushing us into the second point. Not only be careful the way you represent God, but be clear. Be clear. That's what he means to teach us in verses 4, 5, and 6. So what did he say with his tongue? Here it is, verse 4. O Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh God, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am, how transient I am. I mean, whatever's going on, David says, I've got to be clear about at least one thing. My life is a vapor. It's here today, gone tomorrow. It's not going to last as long as we think it is. In fact, I did it, you probably did it when we were young, especially those young teens in your 20s. You might be saying something like this, I've got my whole life in front of me. I'm on easy street. I've got all of this time. And of course, nobody's promised that. But when you're young, of course, And David says, I need to be clear about something. My life, what's the measure of it? I'm I'm fleeting. Life is a vapor. Verse 5, behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths. It's got a D in there, not breath. Breadth. A a measurement, a, a, a way of measuring out my life. In fact, we could do something pretty fun. Everybody put your hand up. Put your hand up. And now in your other hand, you've got the imaginary ruler. And you take that ruler and you put it here and you're measuring it from your thumb to your pinky. How many inches you think? Well, it's going to vary. Four inches. Some of you big guys, eight inches. That's how long our life is. It's the breadth of a hand. That's his point. That's what it means. You've made my days a few hand breadths, a few inches. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because God is the eternal one. Never sleeps, never slumbers, wasn't created, will never die. But we are created, and we will die in this life. 
And it could be like that little grandson of mine. Six days. And David says, I, I need to know with the God that I serve and to be continually reminded that life is short. Maximize your life. Do what's right. Repent and believe. Love and know Christ. Share the gospel with others. Be righteous in your family. Have joy. Confess sin. Love Jesus. Be a person who is careful and clear about life itself. Short. Nothing's granted forever. Nobody can say, this is how long I'm going to live. This is what I'm going to do. I'm in charge. That's what he's saying. He even repeats it. My lifetime, verse 5, is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, a phantom. Surely a man, verse 6, goes about as a shadow, a mist. And then notice that little word off to the side. Sometimes we don't even read it. I think we should. Selah. Selah. You want to know what is behind the Hebrew word selah? Here it is. I have no idea. I have no idea. It's, it's apparently some kind of musical term, and it's apparently a kind of musical term, and obviously it's indented off to the right side, the far right. It's probably, we think, a musical term that means something like an interlude so that you're singing the psalm, because remember, these are songs, but they are a psalm that we're reading, not singing. But when we are reading the psalm or singing the psalm, we're thinking about the words of that psalm, and we should. But maybe Selah is something like this. Stop the words and muse on them only with the instrumental music behind it. Think. Ponder. Sometimes even the songs that we sing on Sunday morning or we're singing at home, we're singing the words, but we're singing them either because they're so repetitive to us or we're just singing them and not thinking about it. Selah means stop and think even if the music continues. Think about the words. Think about what they mean. Think about the impact of them. Think about the implications of them. And David is saying, I've got to remind myself every day of my life that life is a vapor. How am I maximizing it? How am I treating others? Just this past Wednesday, after the wedding of my baby girl, Lisa, marrying Tyler Stinnett off to Costa Rica, I still had seven of the others my kids and all of their rugrats climbing around at my house. And it was glorious. And then they all started to leave. And on that Wednesday, 
the last of them are gone. And Wednesday night into Thursday morning, 11.15 California time, 2.15 a.m. Eastern time, I get a call from one of my daughters, Lindsay, has four precious kids. She's crying uncontrollably. And I said, sweetie, what's wrong? What's wrong? Oh, dad, oh, dad, oh, dad, my father-in-law is dead. My father-in-law is dead. I said, what? Andre Dyer? Andre and Don, your, your mother-in-law and your father-in-law, what happened? Well, they were coming home from church, and they were laughing and giggling, and they were talking, and, and he said, I don't feel good, and I can't breathe, and he slumped over, and she grabbed the wheel and tried to break the car and push it off on the side of the road, and dad, he died of a cardiac arrest. I said, oh, sweetie, I'm so sorry. She said, I just need to call my daddy. I said, oh, sweetie, let me pray. Let me pray. It was just last Wednesday. Thursday morning, my time. I'll be headed out to another funeral. This is what David is saying. And notice how he accentuates it there in verse 6. Surely for nothing... They, that is mankind, are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Now he's hitting at a particular area that trips us up, and that is we're following after the riches. We're not thinking about God. We're not thinking about his world. We're not thinking about obedience. We're thinking about the almighty dollar and how we can amass more. Do you remember that that? place in the Gospels where Jesus is teaching and he says, let me tell you about the man who owned a lot of things and he had these barns that were filled with all of his produce and this man says to himself, now come now, I'm amassing even more and more of my stuff and what I'll need to do is build bigger barns, more barns, so that I can put all of my produce there and then I can sit back and have my ease and eat and drink and be merry. You remember that gospel account? And do you remember what happens next? Excuse the power of my voice, but God says to him that night, you fool! I think that's the sense of the exclamation point there. You fool, tonight your soul is required of you. That means that man will die that night. Tonight your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you possess? That's what God's word says. That's what this means. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather because it won't be him. He spent all of his time amassing all of his wealth and he wasn't rich toward God. We've got to be clear about that. Thirdly, not only be careful and clear, but be contrite. Be contrite. What does David teach us in Verses 7 to 11. Here's what he teaches us. And now, O Lord, 
for what do I wait? Just contrasting immediately the man who was not rich toward God, the man who was heaping up wealth and didn't know who will gather all that wealth that he's amassed. David says, Lord, for what do I wait? Here it is. My hope is in you. It's not in my riches. It's not in my kingship. I mean, David, he's getting it. He's understanding it. But then he takes a turn. And he says in verse 8, Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool, like that man who was heaping up wealth to himself. Now, we, again, don't know exactly what David is referring to here, but he's looking at his sin, and he's wanting to deal with his sin. He calls it transgressions. And it makes him even close his own mouth. Verse 9, I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Done what? Not make him have transgressions. We know it can't be that. What, what has David done? We don't know. But we know this. He knows that there's sin behind it because David's a sinner. We know the penitential Psalms, Psalms 32 and Psalm 51. David was a sinner just like us. And somehow and in some way, and we know because when we read the history of Israel about King David, he had a lot of sins. He'd wrecked his family. He'd been an adulterer. He'd made a census of the people when he shouldn't. He was a sinner. And he knew it. And he's asking God, I want to be contrite. I want to be repentant. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Don't make me like the, the scorn of the fool. I'm mute. I don't even open my mouth. For it is you who have done it. Done what? He tells us in verse 10 exactly what it is. Remove your stroke from me. You know what a stroke is here? God's chastisement. God's loving but certain chastisement. You say, wait, wait, that's not the God I serve. No way. I'm in Christ and God does not do that. Well, of course it's true that if you and I are in Christ... God doesn't treat us like unbelievers, but even those who are in Christ, when we veer off the path and we've got some transgressions that need to be dealt with, God in a loving but certain way will take us at times to the spiritual woodshed. He corrects us. Why? Lovingly so that we'll get back on the right path. We, we veer off of it. And he uses his own ways and means as only he can as a perfect heavenly father to chastise us to get us back on the path. That's what David is saying. Remove your stroke from me. I'm being contrite and I'm learning the lesson. We were talking with the pastoral staff earlier this morning and I said, yeah, that reminds me of one of my favorite book titles of all time. This is God's chastisement of us. Here's the book title, What I Learned After I Knew Everything. I love it. I love the title. Because we think that in Christ, we think that for a believer, we should be on easy street. We, we should have all the goodies, we, all the blessings. And of course, the charismatic movement is rife with that. But it's a wrong theology. 
Because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And God is on a relentless quest to continue to make us just like his son. And so he's chastising David. We don't know how or what, but he says it. Verse 10, remove your stroke from me. In other words, I think I'm learning the lesson now, Lord. I'm spent by the hostility of your hand. And then he even makes it clearer, verse 11, when you discipline a man, and we we all have it, Hebrews chapter 4 says that unless you're an illegitimate son and not a true son in the faith, what son is there that that his father doesn't discipline him? We've had earthly fathers who've disciplined us, and it's not joyful in the moment, it's very sorrowful, but afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I get it. I get what I wasn't getting before. That's what David's saying. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume him like a moth, like a moth what is, what is dear to him. I was clutching on my money or my house or my goods or my riches or my nostalgia or my family or whatever it is you and I cling to that we know We should not be clinging to it like that as we should be clinging to our Heavenly Father. And David was going through it. And then he gives another Selah. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Think about it again, Lance. Think think about it again, David. Think about how life is but a breath. Sometimes in the Old Testament, it even uses this idea of life in this way. It's one exhale. One inhale, one exhale. Here's life. That's it. In comparison with God's eternality, life is a mere breath. Inhale once, exhale once, and that's life in comparison with God. So we've got to be contrite. We've got to learn the lessons that God has given us. I don't think I would be learning the lessons that I'm learning and the platform that the Lord is giving me without these seven successive deaths in my family. Would I want it to be differently? Yes. Would I need to be trusting my Heavenly Father through my own repentance and contrition? Most certainly, yes. One last point. Be consistent. Be careful. Be clear, be contrite, and be consistent. Look at the last two verses as we close. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Now, I'm saying it softly, but it might be for David something like this. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. I'm crying out to you. And I tell you, my friends, in the night watches over the last five years of my life, and particularly the last three, and especially because of the loss of my wife, in the night watches when everything is still and dark and silent, I cry out to God, give me mercy, give me grace, give me your favor. 
I'm alone with you now, Lord. Be my all-sufficiency. Sometimes I even inadvertently, involuntarily just reach out my arm just to make sure that Beth is there. But she's not there. And believe you me, she would not want to come back here for me or anything else because she's with her Savior. And I need to focus on that. And that's what David is saying. Hold not your peace at my tears. Or the NAS, do not be silent at my tears. In other words, you, you've disciplined me and, and now I've, I've become contrite and I begin to understand it and I'm learning the lesson about it and now I'm asking you that in the night watches when everything is still and silent, don't ignore my tears. Oh, I can't tell you how many nights the tears have flowed from my eyes. Be my all in all. That's what David's saying. Hold not your peace at my tears. And I use that outline point, be consistent, because I'm challenging myself and challenging you. We must all consistently ask for his grace every day. Lord, thank you for your grace. Could I have some more grace today? Thank you for the mist, the dew of the grass that shows me once again each and every day how faithful you are to give me grace. That's what I need. For I'm a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. I- I'm, just, I'm just here for a little while. You remember the old hymn? This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I'm a stranger. I'm on a journey. This is not all there is. And don't you thank God for that? As many blessings as we receive, that's wonderful. But this ain't it, my friends. There's a new day coming. No sorrow, no tears. No sickness, no disease. All hope, no despair. This is... This is how David closes it, and I say, you and I need to be consistent in asking what he's asking for. And notice what he says, verse 13, look away from me. Now, that's strange to me. What does he mean, look away from me? No, Lord, I want you to look to me. I want you to look for me. I want you to be for me. I think what he means by look away from me is look away from me from those times when you were disciplining me. Look look away from the discipline of me, and now give me consistently grace for my tears, peace for my tears, that I may smile again. My friends, I tell you as I close this message, though my heart has been racked, I'm smiling because Jesus Christ is alive. And he has been raised from the dead, never to die again, and to rule and reign forever and ever where you and I will reside. If you're a Christian, you and I can live, regardless of our circumstances, with nothing but a sweet 
smile because of our Savior. Is it not so? Let's bow together in prayer. And David says here, Lord, look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. We, we too should look at our life and say, before I depart and am no more, no more, whenever that comes, may I have a consistent smile and your peace at my tears, regardless of my circumstances, for your glory and for my good. May it be so with all of us. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.